The information expressed in the following podcast is intended for educational purposes only and was created by and belongs solely to Believe Limited and the Flow podcast and does not necessarily reflect the views of our sponsors. Please speak to your healthcare provider before making any medical decisions. Hi, I'm Jessica and welcome to Flow. I'm here with Sarah Watson, sex therapist and Dr. Julia Jaffe, AKA the millennial OBGYN. We're here to talk about the reality of abortion, but first, we're all gonna wanna know, how's your flow? Welcome once again to Flow. We start off Flow with a quick check-in to normalize the reality of menstruation. I'm just going to ask all of us to answer, how's your flow? I am in the luteal phase. I had a really rough ovulation, to be honest with you. Pain, terrible, kept me up. I hated it, and I'm glad it's over. Glad that's Well, I'm done. glad it's over then. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Dr. Jeffy, how about you? How's your flow? I will say my flow is non-existent. I have a Lailetta, which I've had for many years. Haven't had bleeding in about a decade. Doing great. Lovely. Great. A decade. That's amazing. I'm like, I want to do a handstand for you. Thank you. I love, I know, Morena for life over here. (laughs) Love the Morena. Love Love the Liletta. Morena is also great. Yes. Yes. All the brands. Well, I am not on any birth control, so I've been experiencing my menstruation for the past 10 years as such. I am currently dealing with an infection in my tonsils, so steroids and antibiotics and feeling how those interact with where I am in my flow. Like, I am not menstruating currently, but if I were during this, I think I'd be, I think I'd need to take a knee. Having having some sensitivity. Yeah, definitely all those things are related. It can be very hard to trace exact cause and effect for, you know, how different antibiotics or medications affect flow, if you will, and other things reproductive because there's so many variables. But, you know, I'm glad that you're not having everything together. Cheers. Yes. I appreciate yes. that too. And I'm so glad that we have you here today to talk to us about some of those intricacies, particularly how it relates to pregnancy and abortion. We're going to get right into it after this quick break. This ad is brought to you by Von Vendi, Von Willebrand Factor Recombinant. My name is Nicole, and my deciding factor is making my voice heard. To hear the backstory, drop by Von Vendi. That's V-O-N-V-E-N-D-I dot com slash patient dash stories. We're in it. We're in it. We are going to talk about the reality of abortion. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. We know that there's a stigma around abortion. We know that there's a lot of conversation around the legislation that's aiming to Mm. restrict abortion access. But we here today are so lucky to have Dr. Julia Jaffe, Dr. OBGYN here to help us shine light on what happens during pregnancy that can present high risk, why an abortion might be a necessary part of saving the life of a mother, as well Mm -hmm. as the details of what's impacting medical sector right now with restricted access to abortion. So it sounds like a lot. We're going to get in real easy. I kind of just want to talk about (laughs) pregnancy first. I've seen some of your content online, doctor, and your availability to expose the realities of pregnancy preeclampsia, all the details is really inspiring. It's not usually involved in the conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think one important thing to keep in mind with the context is that I really believe there really is not a hierarchy of abortion needs or abortion care. So when we talk about risks of pregnancy and the way that we make decisions about our individual health care, 
we certainly want to keep in mind the true life or death circumstances, you know, for people who particularly are struggling with bleeding disorders and come to it from that perspective, there is a dramatically increased risk of blood loss requiring transfusion and, mm -hmm. you know, potentially really fatal events like blood clots, DVTs and PEs, as well as hypertensive disorders, metabolic disorders like gestational diabetes. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, aside from the more dramatic and flashy life-threatening risks, which are very real and I don't want to minimize, but there's also costs that are less quantifiable or less or less headline grabby, right? You have to put aside financial resources and time resources and attention. And those are things that I think get missed in the conversation about when we talk about the risks and costs of pregnancy and why that decision really has to be, you know, left up to an individual. Absolutely. Yes, thank you. The the reality or lack of reality of maternal support uh, mm -hmm. as an option for those in pregnancy. Is yeah, I think a lot reality. of the conversation focuses on, you know, is abortion needed? What exceptional situations constitute a big enough risk that this person should be entitled to make medical decisions about their own body? But I think really my assessment of your personal risk is really less important than your assessment of your risk. It's certainly more than the government's assessment of what your needs are. Uh huh. Yeah, a round of applause goes there. Yes, the yes, in please. So that's the crowd. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so if you had other specific questions about, you know, risks in pregnancy and how we make some of those decisions about different ages, shoot. Could you speak just to like general risks in pregnancy that are often spoken about? I mean, besides what you've already mentioned, and maybe a little bit more about those. Yeah, well, risk of you know we mentioned common things, gestational hypertension, which if progress to severe cases can lead to seizures, which can really be life-threatening. Gestational diabetes, which can lead to lifelong diabetes, which can be a chronic health issue that we know contributes to a lot of suffering and a lot of life complications. Basically, pregnancy events affects really every organ system in your body, right? So it can affect liver function, thyroid function, asthma and pulmonary function. But there really is not a single system that I can say isn't affected. Sure. And, you know, just because some of our audience is experienced in medical language, but you are an expert, can you describe, for example, the hypertension, what that does to the body as an example of what goes on during pregnancy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's actually not entirely known what causes some what causes some people to have what we call gestational hypertension or preeclampsia. I think one of the terms that people may be more familiar with is preeclampsia and, you know, how that can progress to eclampsia which is when you actually have a seizure in pregnancy. And the only cure ah. for this condition is deliveries, is ending the pregnancy. Mm. So we have risk mitigation strategies. You know, we use antihypertensives and magnesium and medications to help reduce the risk of seizures. But really the only treatment for that is delivery. And essentially, you know, in pregnancy, your blood volume significantly increases. It increases by about half. And mm -hmm. there are a lot of metabolic changes that go on to make nutrients and blood and oxygen available to a developing fetus, right? The fetus grows and is kind of greedy about oxygen and sugar and all these things that you need. The body of a pregnant person mobilizes more sugar into your bloodstream and you have an enormous increase in blood volume. And in some people, we believe certain factors related to the placental development cause sort of dysregulation of your blood vessels. So you have increased blood pressure. And that can be a sign of increased dangers to come, which again can result in seizures, which can be really fatal. 
And I did get to interview a woman who went through a birthing experience with preeclampsia, and she talked about the magnesium sulfate, that it's like lava Mm. through the veins, like that the amount of endurance to use the risk-mitigating treatments that are available Mm -hmm. is a high-quantitative pain experience. Yeah, you know, those experiences are very subjective, so it's hard for me to speak to any individual person what it feels like to get magnesium sulfate, but I will tell you it can be sedating. And, you know, when you're on Mm -hmm. magnesium sulfate, we also routinely monitor for magnesium toxicity, as well as for progressing signs of preeclampsia. So you're getting a constant IV drip, you're getting poked every six to eight hours, you're getting your reflexes checked, and we're closely monitoring the fetus because the magnesium can be sort of suppressing not only to like the pregnant person, but also to fetal functions. Mm. So because you're in this like closer surveillance state, because you're in a high risk state, you have a higher risk of having other interventions like induction or cesarean delivery. Mm. So it can be quite stressful. Yes. I think I've had so many friends, well, not so many go through that, but just being concerned. Okay, this is something that is a risk because now we're talking about it a little bit more. And could you speak to, does that, if you have multiple pregnancies, is there a heightened, like, are you at risk to have it for your second pregnancy if you had it for your first? Or like, how does that? Yeah, I would say statistically in medicine, the biggest risk factor for having anything is if it happened once before. Got it. So it is true that if you have a you have a history of high blood pressure in pregnancy or, you know, gestational hypertension or preeclampsia, we do monitor more closely because there is an increased risk of having that again. Okay. Which, you know, coming back to the abortion rule, you know, the abortion debate Mm -hmm. and who makes these decisions and why they might be making these decisions. I think there's been a lot more discourse about this recently, but people tend to forget that this could be a person who has children at home who has a high risk pregnancy and in order to protect their own safety makes a specific risk calculation to say, I can't put myself at risk. Mm -hmm. I need to be here for myself and for my family. So that sort of ties in with the sort of individual medical decision-making we were talking about. And certainly it is higher risk with further pregnancies, with age and pregnancy, mm-hmm. and, you know, as well as multiple pregnancies. And again, having had interventions before makes you more likely to have interventions in the future. Mm. Now that can be changed, right? If, if you have a doctor who is sensitive to shifting patterns, it part of the reason that the risk of having interventions might be higher is iatrogenic is because doctors see these things written down and are more likely to intervene. But even aside from that, Mm. medically speaking, Mm -hmm. you're more likely to have these complications if you've had them before. And that should be a thing that factors into counseling and decision making around pregnancy. Absolutely. I had a placenta previa uh, for most of my pregnancy. And it definitely played a role in thinking about how, what do we want this to look like? And genetically, you know, I have a daughter who does not have hemophilia, which we found out last week. We're oh, super cool. pumped about that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I know. Big talk. Very exciting. Yeah. I mean, the point about previa, I mean, that's one of those things that people don't talk about very much. And it's not. Right. I had no idea. What? I don't know what it is. But what? it's one of those things where you look and you're like, oh, no one told me that this could happen. And then you're talking exactly. about really dangerous bleeding complications. You're talking about a possible hysterectomy. You're talking about spending possibly weeks to months on an antepartum floor, mm-hmm. which is an experience that I think most people really have no awareness of. Right. So if you are sick or if there's. Any, if there's a medical concern that requires close observation or treatment in the hospital and you're pregnant, 
you don't get admitted to a labor floor, you get admitted to the antepartum floor, which is the pregnant mm. people down the hall who are not actively being delivered. And, you know, sometimes people are there for weeks or months having multiple ultrasounds and interventions and often sharing a room with someone and yeah. really spending months often fretting about what may or may not happen in the hospital. And it can be a really high stress state. And I think, you know, it's one of these sort of unseen, undiscussed sort of populations, if you will, with people who are, you yep. know, staying in the hospital, treated almost like chronically ill patients that people just often are not aware of, as you said. So if you have an experience with that, that's something that, yeah, it's worth sharing. Yeah, I, I thank goodness didn't get admitted to the hospital, but was I mean, this, the level of stress that shot up when we figured, you know, got that diagnosis of placenta previa and knowing that I could not be further than 30 minutes away from a hospital, which restricted everything that we could do and couldn't go to my grandmother's funeral in Florida oh, no, because I was sorry. pregnant, right? Oh, thank you. But it was a huge impact. And then there's other stuff after delivery, but like, yeah, it's things that we don't talk about. And so you know, it's definitely part, I hope, part of the conversation moving forward for other people that it, things happen. Why we do our job here on flow, yes. right? So just to recap, because it's new to me, uh, it's, yeah. it, it's a problem during pregnancy when the placenta completely or partially covers the opening, the cervix covers the opening of the uterus. Yeah. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. And so the placenta also, the placenta it tends to also underneath. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it tends to also involve the placenta sort of growing into the uterus so that when you deliver, the tissues don't cleanly separate and the pregnant person can have bleeding. But also, you know, if we're talking about a fetus or a neonate, the blood that is not getting out of the pregnant person is not getting to that newborn. Right. So they can get very ill very quickly. So it's a it's an emergency situation or it's a situation in which we're always ready for an emergency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it can be really scary stuff. We see a lot of like things go from good to bad very quickly. And the reality is most, to put perspective on it, most pregnancies don't have these complications and no. go well. But that is, this is not to be like fear mongering or anything like negative about pregnancy per se. But yeah, I think when we talk about sort of like risk benefits and alternatives, these risks are very real. And it's, you know, there's no other area in our society where we determine that people should put their own life at risk, even minimally, right, right, against their will, right? There is no right. situation in which I say, well, there's a one in a, I should have to take on any risk for myself against my will for the good right. of another person, right? You can have a, right. a pregnancy that is delivered. And on day one of pregnancy, if that neonate, that newborn needs an organ or needs bone marrow, right. there is no situation in which we say it's compulsory that you put your life on the line, even for something right. minor, because you have control really over your body and to make your decision about what risks are acceptable for you. Yes. yes. Round of applause for bodily autonomy <laughs> yeah. being supported. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, again. Because yes. we are taught, but we also want to talk about the reality because culturally, mm -hmm. a sense of motherhood has been in pink and blue clouds or some kind of reality of softness, but the National Geographic video of birthings could show us the reality is an amazing right. animalistic primal mess mm -hmm. and there's blood and there's guts. It's just all there. So dealing with that reality doesn't make it any less interesting to those looking to family plan or hopefully, hopefully doesn't, but right. shouldn't be kept shrouded as if it's not part of a very dangerous bodily experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's definitely glossed over and people talk about the miracle of birth that a lot of people have those experiences. And I think everyone has a range of experiences, 
But yeah, this is a medical procedure. We take this very seriously. We monitor very closely because it is a situation that can go from good to bad very quickly. And mm -hmm. I think to your point too, a lot of people, you know, and this is not directly related to abortion care, but sort of more general information about pregnancy and fertility and, and delivery and all these things, that I think it is, most people really have very little idea of what to expect when they go on a labor floor or schedule an abortion because it is mm -hmm. shrouded, it is private, and it can be unnerving to hear people talk to you about all these scary things, right? Every time you get admitted to a labor floor in a lot of places, mm -hmm. on admission, we have you sign consent forms for an emergency cesarean delivery or induction or other procedures because there's so much that the average person doesn't know medically about how we make these decisions that sometimes we really don't have time to explain everything that you need to know in the moment. Because if we need to act, we need to act that quickly. And it can catch a lot of people off guard because you're coming in, maybe you haven't even had very much prenatal care, you haven't really had a lot of counseling and you come in in labor and we're like, well, here are all the things that we might need to do to you in right. order to keep you safe and healthy. And I think it can be a real slap in the face to a lot of people. And, you know, the postpartum experience as well, right? I think a lot of people find themselves sort of unprepared for the sort of physical and social and psychological adjustments, as well as the mm -hmm. resources that it really requires to take care of yourself and a newborn. Yeah, absolutely. When I too, I, I don't know if you hear this in your office, Dr. Jeffy, but often I have, if I have friends or clients that are pregnant, like they don't want to hear about the stories of like, this could go wrong, right? And which makes sense. You don't want to bring that stress into your like zone, into your, you know, to your area of like, I'm so excited if you're so excited that you're pregnant. And they're like, no, don't tell me your horror stories, but then they'll be done. And they're like, what the the hell just happened to me right and right. then you know as a clinician I'm like okay well let's talk about the trauma you just went through absolutely and I think when you say people don't talk about it or don't want to say the negative things I think that's one of the challenging things about navigating something that's such a sensitive area for so many people I see a person who is here to confirm pregnancy and they're really excited and they've been trying or maybe they're upset and frightened or whatever the situation is but, you know, I have to explain to people, my script is that, you know, with a positive pregnancy test, we really have three possibilities here. You have a normal mm -hmm. early pregnancy in the uterus, right? You have an abnormal pregnancy in the uterus. You know, about 10% of pregnancies miscarry, and I just have no way of assessing right. that right now. And the third possibility is an ectopic pregnancy, you know, which in right. the average population is only about a 2% risk, but that's one in 50. That's not nothing. So if someone comes in with a positive pregnancy test, and I want to be supportive and happy and sensitive to sort of the cultural meaning of what that is or the right. personal meaning of what that is. But we really do have to also talk about what we need to do to make sure you're safe, right? So congratulations, but also we need to schedule an ultrasound. And until we have that, I need you to be aware that if you feel sick, you need to go to the emergency room because you could have life-threatening bleeding. You know, that right. is part right. of the initial yay conversation. Yes. And yes, I think you're right. There's a lot of sort of lore and mythologizing about motherhood and pregnancy and the sort of fairy tale of what that means. And it's not to negate the true meaning and joy that people get from family relationships. But yeah, I mean, I think the sort of fetishization of it can really be a barrier yes. to making real world decisions, right? A hundred percent. Yes, yes. And ignorance is bliss. But so maybe that's the, the spirit of yes. sometimes it is a little bit harsher to hear the realities, but that is helpful if you end up facing those realities to know what you're getting into is the is the disclaimer. Right. Oh, that's, and yes. I think that's right. We talk about informed consent and it's really 
you know, unfortunately, obviously the government has really interfered with this recently, but, mm-hmm. you know, there are already doctors who are being compelled to really betray that principle by not giving informed consent, by reading false scripts that they know to be untrue about what right. the risks and benefits of abortion are. You know, to your point, we really do have to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly in order to make these decisions. Sorry, that was a bit of a tangent. No, 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 we love a tangent. I'm ready to go into like what is truth, because exactly, if CDCs are allowed to present themselves as places to help support your abortion decision, but are actually complete anti-abortion propaganda machines. Yeah, you mean pregnancy centers? Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was. I had not even known about those honestly until a few years ago. I did my surgical fellowship at Emory and had I don't know gotten to know people in the department there and I hadn't even known that crisis pregnancy centers were really a thing until one of a group of actually mm. like reproductive advocates in the nurse practitioner community were sort of like holding a gathering to to talk about what we can do to combat these they're really dangerous and I learned recently that even in New York even in New York City they outnumber abortion clinics yeah what Number? in New York City that's insane yeah. now that doesn't include when you talk about abortion clinics that doesn't I don't have like all the data on this, so someone can fact check me. That's totally fine. But, you know, when we talk about abortion clinics, that does not include people like myself who do abortions in our office or at like an academic hospital. Right. Sure. For what it's worth for any listeners who are in New York and nervous because I my patients certainly are. I am not having any pushback at this point. It's just not to relax on the issue. We need to be constantly advocating as well for, you know, around the country. But where we're at today, I am not seeing barriers to availability for OR space or misoprostol or, you know, any of those things. But the misinformation coming from healthcare workers across mm. the board is really is is really a scary thing. And we see public figures, politicians with MDs very famously out there spreading lies that really uh-huh. I think also need to be held accountable. Yeah. So who, yeah, and who does hel- hold accountable? Who does? Who do we yeah, have to hold accountable? The people with microphones saying, I mean, we're with microphones here, are contributing what we can to a public convo. Yeah. But there's people who have a microphone. They just say, yeah, know. whatever the hell they want. Yeah, yeah, it's really scary. It's very dangerous. Like intentional misinformation. That's okay. So intentional misinformation. Let's talk about the maybe unintentional or but maybe neglectful lack of education even within the medical sector. Can you share what? information about abortion was accessible to you as a student versus what you discovered from your own study? Well, I will say as a student, I was a med student at Mount Sinai, which is a, it shouldn't really have to be called progressive, but in the current state, it is. It's a progressive, you know, institution. Abortion was taught as basic part of gynecologic care. And so that was actually really normal to my view. I will say mm-hmm. in my in my residency training, there was a wider diversity of, of views on the subject. And I worked with several residents, GYN residents who didn't perform abortions. And so a lot of my attendings didn't perform abortions. And I will say there were a couple of people who did second trimester abortions, which is a procedure that we do to evacuate fetus after 12 to 14 weeks, we use just different instruments. It's a little bit higher risk because we're moving more tissue and we have to open the uterus more to do a little bit more work. But generally extremely safe with low complication rates. And again, people who are making their own decisions, which I'm going on a tangent. But I will say most of the residents in my program declined to participate in those. And I think 
that was something that really surprised me being in New York City and working with a group of future gynecologists who did not want to participate in abortion care. So that was a real reality check. And I've seen a lot of discussions about there was an article in the New Yorker a while ago that mentioned, you know, what is the future of OBGYN care and how are yes. residency programs in Ohio going to function? And I do hear right. a lot of anxiety around and stress around that from med students and trainees and educators in the field. But I think it's also important to recognize that access has already been so restricted and the training has already been so restricted. You know, and again, coming back to the crisis pregnancy centers in my training in Georgia, way before the fall of Roe, something like 95% of counties in Georgia don't even have a gynecologist, much less an abortion provider. The, Wait, the act, oh, just like a are, gynecologist? There one guy, and I'm going to wow. mess it up now. This is bad because I, I want to say Mississippi, but I could be Missouri. There's only one guy in the state who did abortions. Holy and he was shit. an incredibly smart, caring, active, vocal black man. And he would get threats from his own community sure. that he was betraying his people. And he was the one guy in the entire state. And this oh was 10 years old. Oh, gosh. Or, yeah, this was almost 10 years ago. So, yeah, as far as what we learned about it and how we talk about it, I will say medical students and medical trainees are people and they live in the culture in which they live. Uh -huh. And so for me, coming from an intellectual progressive background, talking to a lot of doctors in training who did not have that background was surprising to me. But it also provides some background insight for the political situation that we're in right now, which is that mm -hmm. just because you're a physician doesn't mean that you are using science-based practices all the time to, yep. to treat your patients, mm -hmm. which is unfortunate and is really unfortunate because it really undermines trust in doctors, which we also need so, so very badly right now. But as far as normalizing what it is and what it looks like, in training, I don't know what, I never really particularly took a squeamish approach to this. I will say, I talked to a lot of people about how it felt doing the second trimester terminations. And you're expected to have a certain apologetic or, I don't know, remorseful tone around these things. And I always was really struck how much people were like, oh, is it really sad? No, like I really felt proud to do this. These are people who yeah. really needed care. I felt nothing but a sense of pride to be able to help people who really did not have a lot of other places to go. And this is not yes. to contribute to stigma and people have abortions for all kinds of reasons. But in the situation in which I was, it was largely young black women who had learned that they were pregnant later on because they didn't have access to care. And this was a procedure that was really life saving for them, if not because right. they were immediately at risk of death, because this would have altered the course of their lives to the point that would be irreparable. People talk about adoption as an alternative. And to your point, that's not an alternative because they have medical risks. No. And again, don't remember the exact legal details, but you can fact check me on this. When I was a medical student, you know, we rotate at the hospital, the city hospitals. And so I was working at Elmhurst Hospital, which is mm -hmm. one of the most diverse communities in the world. It was the official hospital for Rikers Island. It was resource per community. And when they started, there were babies left in the bathroom and in a dumpster. And it, it led to a lot of these rules about being able to basically drop off a baby anywhere, no questions asked, because right. people were so desperate that they were going through pregnancy, not having resources. And that was really their only way out. So again, a little bit of a tangent there. But I don't know, as far as the second trimester terminations and like the, the reality of what that looks like, and we do remove fetal parts. And then we had a great team of nurses there who would sometimes not want to touch 
things or be a little squeamish about it, but they showed up, they were kind and respectful to our patients, and it was a meaningful contribution, I felt. As far mm-hmm. as the reality of first trimester termination, honestly, it's it's one of the more routine and kind of boring procedures that we do. And I don't want to, for any patient who's undergoing this, you don't want to think that your doctor's not. We take individual patients seriously. We always check all of our boxes to make sure that, you know, we're minimizing risks of infections and blood interactions and all these potential complications. But realistically, to do an abortion in the first trimester takes me about five minutes. It's one of the first things, as an intern, it's one of the first things that you, because we do them so frequently, because someone has a miscarriage or someone wants an abortion, that it's one of the first things that you really do on your own without the attending's hands on you as you're learning to do it. Because it really is is very straightforward in the vast majority of cases. And so when I talk to patients now about scheduling an abortion, I sort of say, Wait, sorry. I'm going to hold this for one second. And I'll yeah, of course. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, she's amazing. Um, okay, I'm sorry. I feel like we have people waiting. That's fine. It's fine. I realize we're getting close to the hour. This is such great content, but we'll wrap it up in like five minutes. Is okay, okay, yeah. I feel like I've been rambling so much. You're wonder- wonderful. Basically, the reality of first trimester abortion, I talk to patients now who come to me and are, you know, want to terminate a pregnancy and we talk about different options. And, you know, one of the benefits of doing a surgical termination is if you come to me and you're pregnant today, and I have time in the OR, you will not be pregnant a week from now. You can go to work the next day. I appreciate people feel a lot of whiplash emotionally and can raise all kinds of life questions and bigger identity questions when you realize you're pregnant and have to make decisions about what to do about it. But medically speaking, you know, you come to me and you're pregnant today, you won't be next week. Let's talk about contraception and get back on your way. And I talk to people about the procedure. And basically, I'm doing it in the hospital. You can't eat or drink anything the night before because we do use general anesthesia. You don't always use general anesthesia, but in the hospital, that is their protocol. So you can't eat or drink anything the night before. You come in in the morning. I meet with you. You meet with the anesthesiologist. We go to the OR. They put a bunch of monitors on you. They put booties on your legs to keep your circulation flowing nice and smooth. We put you in a pelvic exam position. I use a little sort of, I sometimes describe it as sort of a little pencil-like thing to dilate the cervix. Insert a sort of semi-rigid plastic tubing with a vacuum on it to take out the contents of the uterus. We make sure nothing's bleeding. We dab you up. We take you to the recovery room. Once you're walking and talking, you go home. You won't remember anything I say to you immediately after, so I'll call you tomorrow. (laughs) You'll probably have some spotting and cramping. You can take Advil or Motrin if you don't have any contraindications to those medications, but you can really go back to work the next day. And so I'm sort of like, it's sort of like a travel day, you know, it's like there's all this sort of hassle built into the bracketing ends of it. But the procedure itself is 10 minutes. Got it. That is the reality of what an abortion process can be like. That is so, it's a good reminder that abortion is life-saving. Abortion is healthcare. Mm -hmm. We could probably keep talking about the separation or needed separation of medicine and religion, but we know you have a very busy schedule. Thank you for normalizing the reality of abortion with us. We'd love to have you back on as the fates allow. Yes. Yeah, I would love it. Thank else? you. This was a great conversation. And, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of stuff that we didn't get to, but if you want to talk again, I'd be happy to. And um, thanks awesome. a lot. Awesome. Thank you. This was amazing and really informative. Very helpful. That's it for now. But join us on the first Thursday of every month this year. We have one more month to talk about abortion. See you soon. Bloodstream Media is more than just a rare disease podcast network. With shows on chronic pain, menstrual health, and Dungeons and Dragons. Yes, Dungeons and Dragons. Bloodstream Media's got a little something for everyone. Visit bloodstreammedia.com or find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram to learn more. And thanks to our sponsor Takeda for their support of Flow. 
Flow is produced by Bloodstream Media. Shout out to Amy Board, creative director, and your hosts, Sarah Watson and Jessica Richmond. In 2022, Flow will have new episodes the second Thursday of every month. Hey, that's the day after I start menstruating. <laughs>